This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Welcome to the episode with Samson Folk and Caitlin Cooper. Uh, I don't know, like, there's a different format this year. This is, like, technically a Raptors weekly podcast, but it's also a live episode. It's also maybe, like, just a, a recap episode of sorts. But we're going to, you know, pad out more conversation around basketball in general, especially since we got the Raptors versus Pacers matchup last night, which was an awesome game. Less awesome for you, Caitlin. Obviously, we'll get into that. But also on top of that is a, a really unique dichotomy. You called on Twitter and you told me that the, the Pacers defense is like vanity sizing. It's going to make your offense look much better than it is. And the Raptors were playing the Pacers, who I think still at this point have a historically great offense, maybe the best of all time by the numbers. And then you compare that to the Raptors who were I think 27th or 28th in half-court offense coming into this, despite being the best transition offense. They didn't bump themselves up past like 22 or 23. So, hey, there's a bunch of stuff going on. Caitlin, we're here to talk basketball. How are you doing, the world's best basketball analyst? How are things over there? Doing well. I think it's pretty cool that I'm here on an American holiday, not being an American who thinks that the world revolves around my country and instead choosing to talk about raptors pacers rather than doing holiday Viva things. la revolution yes this is this is your means of um pushing back let's do the like spark notes flashbulb moments raptors versus pacers big takeaways and i'll let you go first and then if i have any that don't fit under your umbrella of takes i'll share mine as well Mine is sort of topical based on, I will let people know, I've watched, I've tried to watch Raptors games. I obviously have not seen as many Raptors games as Samson has seen. So my takes, you have to be filtered through that lens. I think that Jakob Pertl was kind of the biggest story really coming out of that game. I really do. Like it was clear within five minutes that that was not going to be a matchup for him. And I've watched other games that haven't really seemed like they're going to be a matchup for him. And if he's not doing what he did defensively after he got traded there, that completely altered and made that scheme much more conservative and workable. Does it make sense for him to still be out there in certain lineups, which clearly it didn't by the end of the game, he was no longer playing. And I liked a lot of the Scotty at five lineups for this matchup against the Pacers. So that was kind of my big takeaway, at least from both sides perspective. Jakob is a, a hot button person, a hot button topic for this, because obviously the Raptors have Raptors fans, Raptors analysts, whoever, have seen in a lot of close games, a lot of important games, it's even been it's been as likely to see Precious Achua down the stretch as it is Jakob Pertl. And most people in their mind would think like, oh, maybe this is a hacky yak thing, something in that vein. Like he doesn't shoot free throws well. But it is more so the fact that they aren't able to play the level of defense 
they expect to be able to play, especially late. And the other tough, tough thing is that like a lot of teams don't close big. Like I, Miles, I was pretty confused at the Pacers not playing him more, to be quite honest with you. And a lot of teams don't close big. But the big problem with Jakob, obviously, you mentioned it's not his matchup. It's not just the late stuff. It's those grind out middle of the game kind of ho-hum possessions where a big man in the paint is supposed to be able to clean up a lot of possessions, is supposed to be able to dissuade a lot of guys from the rim, and is supposed to allow you to be a little bit more aggressive elsewhere while still holding back and kind of playing a more conservative look defensively overall. And you you close up the defense with, you know, the defensive glass, all these types of things. There's a bunch going on. And Jakob isn't meeting all of these prerequisites, whereas he was certainly last season. Uh, why do you think that is, Kalen? Yeah, I mean, last night when the 29 minutes he played, I think the Raptors had 129 defensive rating and then like the 14 that he didn't or whatever the math is there, it was it was 114. So quite the swing. And then in addition to that is you got to be up at the level against Tyrese Halliburton because he's going to pull the string. So if you can't be that close, it's a problem. So yesterday when I talked to Blake, they asked me like, how are you going to defend Tyrese? And I said, this might need to be a weak side corner game for Pirtle. And then you're just switching everything with OG and Scotty, which is eventually what they went to, especially with some of those hybrid lineups that I thought were pretty successful for them against Pacers bench units that basically haven't played together this season. And they did. They put him on Obi Toppin, and then the Pacers were just like, oh, you know what, we'll just roll Obi Toppin. And I think that's the most points that Obi Toppin has scored moving to the basket as a screener all season. He's only converted like four field goal attempts as a screener the whole year. I think he had four he did last like night. two. I think he yeah. caught two yeah. lobs, and he had two like two like pound dribble on the way there even even Jalen Smith had one right like just they they got a lot of stuff on the roll which was tough well yeah and then eventually they're like okay so if they're going to keep screening Obi Toppin and he's a pogo stick now let's put Pirtle on Bruce Brown which is what they did in the fourth quarter and then they're the Pacers were just like well we'll just use Bruce Brown as a ghost screener and now Pirtle's getting wrecked in space which he did have the one block against Bruce in the corner but it just was a very inhospitable matchup so, like I said, if you feel more confident going, and that won't be the case in every single game, but it wasn't a good matchup for him against Boston in the game that I watched either. So, it's uh, it just it doesn't help your offensive spacing most of the time for Pirtle to be out there. So, if the defense isn't elite, this doesn't make a lot of sense at that point. And last season, the defense was elite just on the defensive side. And people listen to this podcast often. Maybe you're sick of me citing this statistic, but the Raptors just on defense were 10 points better per 100 possessions with Jakob on the floor. That was an insane swing. I think among bigs, that was like the 98th percentile. And they were also better with him on offense because he was, you know, he was a good pair with Fred Van Vliet last season. Yeah. It's been different so far this season with Shooter. I'm overjoyed with how Shooter has performed so far. He is like, for a mid-level exception guard, I think he's been phenomenal. I think people should be like really happy with what Shooter has provided. But the Raptors are in a state of flux. Let's talk about... Actually, let's keep talking about Tyrese. I'm kind of like, what the hell? Sometimes I watched... I remember I was with my dad in like 2013. And I was watching the Warriors play the Nuggets. Maybe this was... It's 2012 or 2013. And my dad is saying, this is before Curry takes over the world. The, my dad is like, why is he shooting those? I'm like, no, no, he's supposed to shoot those. Like this guy, he shoots those. 
And I watched Tyrese last night. I watched the Raptors switch everything across the top. And I watch him see the switch. He's 28, 29 feet away. And different pickup points. He's grabbing it at a different spot in his dribble. And just launching and skipping back on the way. Like, I'm like, what the hell? And then you watch Buddy Heald do the same thing. And Buddy is doing it off the dribble as well. I'm like, Lewis and I wrote about the Maginot line. You know, like France was Mm -hmm. like, we need to make sure Germany can't come in here. So we put up a really fantastic defense. And then Germany was like, we're going around. So the Maginot line is no longer relevant to what we're doing. It felt like at times that Halliburton and Heal looked at all the machinations of the defense and said, that's cute. We'll just hit three feet back. And they did. They hit 12 threes, man. Nuts. What is it like watching yeah, I mean, that? They did it. It's amazing. I did the same thing against Atlanta. Tyrese made seven just in the third quarter, and then the Hawks hard trapped him, three-quarter court trapped him, and then Buddy took over and went five of five and during crunch time. It was just like, you know what? I'll just be a ghost screener and get myself I free, and I'm just going to bang Buddy's these in. on these Raptors, I tell you. I have pined for it. He's so perfect. He's like a perfect... Do you know player. how good of a pairing Pascal and Buddy Heald would be? Woo! You just put him on the strong side. If they like, if you Pascal is so good at finding if you double from the bottom, like yep. worming and getting that lay down to the big. If and if you stacked on the same side, one pass away, buddy healed. Hot damn, man. I would love it. I'd just do an empty side action and just do a ghost screen with buddy and just let Pascal go to work after he goes out. Piece of cake. It would be delightful. <laughs> Obi Toppin and Jerris Walker aren't doing that. That's that is true. Um, we we might talk about it a bit. I obviously people in chat are bringing it up. There is box, of course, in the ether of you know, Indiana fans are like, "Hey, Pascal Siakam's pretty good. Is he disaffected in Toronto? Is this something? Is his uh, team status going to change? All that kind of stuff, yada yada yada." But we're gonna talk about like the the basketball basketball stuff first. Let's keep it on Pascal. You have watched, I've watched more than this Indiana game. You've watched more than this Toronto game. What have you thought of Pascal's job, role, ability to work within it so far this season? And it has changed quite a bit. Like now that we're 15 games in, I think there's a direct like seven game stretch and an eight game stretch that reflect a wildly different approach from the Raptors. perspective i suppose but yeah go nuts yeah the first the first handful of games reminded me very similarly and they're not similar players but when before the pacers veered toward a rebuild there was definite tension between rick carlisle does not want to play out of triangle concepts and demontis sabonis wants to play out of triangle concepts and trying to play this more egalitarian style until they eventually got to a point of it's like oh yeah he probably needs to be the fulcrum even though we don't have shooting he still needs to be the fulcrum it doesn't really make sense to put demontis sabonis in the corner and be trying to run this other stuff this way so that's what it looked like early on and i had some tweets where i was very critical of him for pascal but it's it's looked better the last several games i watched the end of the game against boston i watched the end of the game against the wizards and last night i think that 
as much as the Pacers defense makes other teams look better, it's a get right game. If your offense looks bad against the Orlando Magic, you come into Indiana, it will likely look better. The Pacers made a lot of mistakes last night. But in terms of the overall like functioning and making it look copacetic and making the two worlds merge between, I think, what you need to do with Scotty and what you need to do with Pascal, that from the games that I've watched is the best that I've seen it look, I think. And the Pacers, though, it's funny because yesterday I said I thought when I talked to Blake, I was like, it's going to be a good Pascal game. This is a really good game for Pascal to go off. And in fact, I was like, if they were running last year's offense, it would be a perfect Pascal game. Because if you hunt mismatches, the Pacers are not going to double because they haven't doubled all year. Like Giannis went for 42 before they started doubling the post because they want to defend everything. They don't want to involve tertiary defenders. The pick and roll is two versus two. The post is one versus one. They limit threes more than any other team in the NBA, but they give up a ton in the paint. As it turned out, they were doubling Pascal from the tip when he got it in the post. Their rotations out of those doubles were absolutely atrocious. If you're doubling from the post-entry passer, you have to run to the opposite corner, and then everybody keeps those rotations in front. I do not know. I'm going on a rant. I do not know (laughs) why, if there is somebody in the post, and Jakob Pertl is opposite in the dunker, and Otto Porter's behind him in that same corner, and Gary Trent is on the wing, why Jalen Smith is in front of Pertl, and Benedict Matherin is also right next to Jakob Pertl. So you are doubling Pascal and you're effectively doubling Pirtle and then you just completely lose track of the rotation. So four times that happened. <laughs> and then I also don't know why I do not know why if Buddy is guarding Pascal and has an extended 45 touch, you're letting Pascal back him down 20 to eight feet into midi range without putting another foot in the paint. This, this type of stuff, the whole game was rather atrocious, but it, it was a really good Pascal game and he and Scotty played off of each other on several possessions, especially late in the fourth. So that was better than I've seen it. But again, I haven't seen every yeah. game. So maybe you would say there's another game where they played better together, but it looks copacetic to me. So this, this ties into, I had the, you know, the pleasure of uh, getting a nice little compliment from uh, Rick when he was in Toronto uh, last season, when I was asking about defense and kind of um, asking about the deeper aspects of it. But his answer really intrigued me. We've talked about this before. Whereas we were talking about the future of defense and he said, you know, I think it's like guarding your guy. And then, you know, come this season, the Pacers are like, hey, we're guarding our guys. And like he I, he wasn't giving me fluff. He meant it. He's like the future of defense. We got to stick our guys. And in this game, they move away from that principle. And as, as you mentioned, like it's not necessarily inherent to recover and have a hive mind when that's not something you do normally yep. uh mixed messages cross the wires constantly it was uh, a very interesting game defensive process wise for the the pacers and i had a tweet about it if anybody wants to go look at the video i'm not at the point where i'm screen sharing and showing clips on the live because i don't want to screw up the monetization monetization or anything like that but um the the big plays are that they have Jakob in the mid post and they run a back screen with Pascal and Scotty. Scotty's the back screener. The Raptors are running tons of those this season because they want to create a switch where they can play high, low, all that kind of stuff. And Pascal's filtering to the weak side away from the ball. And the Pacers, you said it was Matherin and Toppin, right? Um, yeah. yeah. And they play yeah. a hedge and recover on that back screen, which means that, Scotty's alone in the paint and he just like seals top and and then goes and gets a really easy entry pass for a layup and you're like oh 
this is maybe a bit messy, but I'm glad Siakam is dragging people on Scotty's game-winning dunk. They bite hard, and as you mentioned, like the Pacers are switching everything four through five. They don't switch there, and so Miles is expecting a switch, doesn't get the switch, starts to bite, and then Scotty's like, oh, a wide-open dunk? I will take that. They also get the pick-and-pop uh, at the end of the third quarter, which is like, hell yeah, really well done by Scotty to hit that three. His three-point shot has been sublime this season. So there's stuff that's working. And we've seen, you know, you use the term copacetic. We've seen good synergy between these two sprinkled in throughout the season. The The tough part is a lot of this synergy comes without Jakob on the floor. And exactly, which yeah. shooting is important. I think that this game is a really great inflection point between, and the Raptors did shoot the ball pretty well from three in this game. But as far as like overall offensive approach, you see the way that the Pacers get to operate because they have insane spacing and everyone is like, like Rick has designed a great offense and Halliburton does a great job running things. And Buddy Heald is the most perfect assassin uh, on the basketball court I may have ever seen. And I just, and the Raptors, they work much differently. And the Raptors don't have the personnel to do what the, the Pacers do. It was such a unique clash of styles, don't you think? I mean, I think if you can get Tyrese helping one pass away off of Malachi and off of OG Ananobi in the corner, you're going to be a great three-point shooting <laughs> team, most likely. It's, uh, well, actually, let's let's stick there. Because Hal Burton is a guy, I think this game goes a fair bit differently. Um, as you, Like Neesmith and Nemhart, if they're in the game. This is something that was interesting, was that the Raptors' second best half-court game before this one was the Orlando game. As crazy as that sounds, the Raptors, when they played in the half court, were very efficient, playing through Schroeder, who had a hot game against Orlando, shooting the ball, and Pascal was shredding Orlando in the post. The big problem is Orlando had over 20 possessions more than the Raptors and shellacked them. And, you know, Bob's your uncle. But the Raptors, as far as, like, working through Siakam when he has the mismatches, that's really good offense. And a couple games in a row where Dennis... He did a great job hitting shots against Orlando. He did a great job hitting shots against Indiana, but also the resistance at the point of attack was less uh, punchy than I guess a lot of teams are able to provide. Mm-hmm. What what did you make of like the point of a point of attack stuff from the the Pacers' point of view? Because we had an interesting conversation before the season about building out a defense with a rim protector or a really good rim protector versus you know being strong elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, just for people who don't know, generally when the Pacers are defending the pick and roll, it's going to be two versus two. So if the ball handler gets off the pick and breaks the free throw line, they get deeper than that, then it's an automatic late switch. So the guard's supposed to go veer into that roller. The big's supposed to start absorbing the ball. So a lot of times the big doesn't start absorbing the ball quick enough or nobody gets into the legs, then the Pacers aren't a good rebounding team anyway. So if you miss the shot, you're probably going to give up an offensive rebound. They don't really help in most cases. That's why it was kind of weird to see Tyrese overhelping in a few of those spots because typically, like I said, they stay home. So it, it would have looked different. Andrew Nemhard has a back soreness. He dealt with a kidney stone at the beginning of the season. He hasn't had a great start to the beginning of the season. Defensively, I still think he's pretty stout in a lot of cases. Like, if you can take Tyrese Maxey and absorb him coming downhill, like, pretty much the only person who's stopping Tyrese Maxey is if it's out of sheer luck or you take the absolute perfect angle. And Andrew can do some of that. So he's he's the best at staying skinny over the top of his screen. 
like there were times last night where Tyrese got caught even on like OG coming off of a ball screen. And then Bruce is like, oh, I'm going to next this. And then Dennis Schroeder's like, I'm going to cut the stunt. And now it's just Pascal wide open for an above the break three, which he actually made. But like, this is the type of stuff that I'm watching. I mean, I do think that Darko does incorporate stuff that helps guys get a bit of a head start sure, into the pick sure. and roll better than what I would have seen last year. Because like, even on that first play of the game, they didn't need it. Like a slice screen on the wing in the NBA, you shouldn't really be getting a back cut to the rim out of a slice screen. The reason you're using the slice screen is so the person will sag off and have to, you know, help on the cutter. And then they're late when they come off of it, getting the ball from Pirtle. They didn't even need to get to that point because Scotty just back cut and got a dunk out of it. But the fact that that's incorporated helps somebody like Dennis Schroeder get a head start before they ever even get to that screen or helps Scotty get a head start before they even get there. So I have liked those little elements of it, but. I don't take a lot from the Pacers' point of attack defense most of the time, but I don't really take a lot from it at all when their two best perimeter defenders aren't available. There's, so. It is kind of funny that the Raptors, the high post stuff, they have a ton of overlap. Like, there's still a ton of overlap between Nurse's playbook and Darko's. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's overlap across the NBA, obviously. And teams derive advantages from, like, three things. Beating a guy off the dribble a screen off ball or on ball or a a dribble handoff. Like it it can be, you know, an off ball screen that a guy is navigating. There's a bunch of different ways to do it. There's a bunch of different ways to defend it. It can be a live dribble across the screen, but there's like three or four things that you derive advantage from and teams have to reckon with that and the skill sets they have guys who create on ball guys who create, you know, aggressive at the level coverages that if you have people who can respond to that, you know, like you make the, let's say they blitz and you have a really good short roll big, it requires different things of the help side than, you know, the other side of things where you don't have a good short roll big, where it kind of like, it can get reset above the break, right? The big isn't getting into space. So you have to swing it to the opposite side for a new guy or whatever. But the Raptors, the high post stuff worked really well against Detroit, against like Marcus Sasser and Jaden Ivey and, and their smaller guards. And even like Cade, who is big, is a lot smaller than Pascal and a lot smaller than Scotty and a lot smaller than OG. The Raptors have been, over the past however many games, doing a good job of servicing their wings. And I thought they did a super terrible job through the first seven games of servicing their wings. I was really impressed with Scotty most of all, obviously, because Scotty, through the first seven games, was scoring like 30% of his points in transition. He was shooting like 68% on his pull-up mid-rangers. He was shooting like 42, 43% from three. And all of the things that Pascal was struggling to do as far as like, oh, there's a goalie in the lane. Maybe there's three. I'm going to shoot over the top. Scotty was efficient and tremendous. But the Raptors, as far as like the quality of their looks, it was really bad. They've gotten way, like the their offensive rating has slowly been climbing as they've initiated through the post more often. It's been climbing as they've gone to the post in early offense. And they've had like the screening actions between these players and the cutting has gotten a little bit better too. And it it helps also that Dennis has had a couple really sharp games from a shot making point of view. I'm curious what you think of the Raptors offensive process overall, considering their lack of shooting and considering that they have a couple guys who like to occupy similar spots on the floor. I mean, sometimes I question why exactly is a team defending this this way and will they continue defending it this way? Because kind of that Iverson loop set for twice they got it. What the heck? Like, honestly, why? (laughs) 
Like, I, first of all, that player is not most likely going to catch the pass with the ball on the opposite side, moving opposite. Like, the, you're not going to catch it there. It was obvious that was going to be a curl. So I don't even really know why you want to cheat it, number one. Number two, why is Miles Turner playing that close to Jakob Pertl as the trigger man? I don't know. Why? I'm getting like... This is the same thing. This is the same thing that happened against the Hawks. Bogdan Bogdanovich tore them up 22 points in the first half because Miles Turner was literally reaching out and grabbing Clint Capella on these curls. Like, just sag off. I don't this, know. this was something. It, all of my hair is going to fall out. <laughs> I, uh, I thought it was interesting when the Raptors played the Celtics the first time. I'm not sure if you saw that game, but Porzingis was in the charge circle. Like, that's how deep he played. And so I asked Joe Missoula about that before their second game, and he decided to pretend that that was normal for the Celtics. And I said, no, no. I was like, no, it's really deep. And he was like, oh, we play. But obviously I've seen. They don't play him that deep all no, the time. No, no. Uh, I've seen Joe interact with other media, and I know he's a bit like like that. Like, that's not a bad thing, by the way. Joe can be however he yeah. wants. Um, he's being funny for himself, I think. I didn't get a good answer. But then. The, Rap- the Raptors had a significantly better game attacking like those those back screens and like the high low stuff because Porzingis played higher in game two. And I was like, they moved away from something that worked. And Pirtle in game one, I know Darko said that he did a good job because I asked Darko about this too, that Pirtle did a good job of attacking Porzingis when he was low, but not really. Like they they put Porzingis super low it moved more shots into Pirtle as a creator going downhill and completely changed the complexion of like 25 actions they ran over the course of the game. It was super successful. And then Boston abandoned it. And I don't know why. It didn't make sense to me. And I don't know why other teams play really high on Jakob. Especially since like if the Raptors had a Buddy Heald, for example, and you, sure, if they had a bunch of DHO threats, you could rise and sure, fire off of it, then for sure. But they don't, not like, truthfully, Gary, but Gary has been super slow to start the season, and he's not necessarily, like, he can come off a DHO, but he's not necessarily dynamic in the rescreen aspect of it or anything like that. So I don't understand teams playing defense like that sometimes. Goga had a good defensive game, and, like, Orlando kind of pinching in on everything, had a good defensive game. Um, and then they... Did you just say Goga had a good... You've seen a lot of Goga. But Goga, like, he crowded a lot of actions. And it was because they weren't super interested in, like, pressing Jakob. I gotta be... I'm really surprised teams press Jakob. We talked about this before the season. We're like, well, why wouldn't you just sag off? And teams who sag off are really reaping the war the rewards. And when they don't seg off it's like oh there's advantages to be gained here because you're clearing out the paint for pascal and scotty who almost any like maybe it's paul george and Kawhi who can handle like a pascal scotty back screen and like carve and seal situation but there's like what like three teams in the nba that can reasonably handle that if their big is out of the paint and teams are bringing their big out of the paint i don't get it it's good though i like it you know they're scoring buckets Hell yeah. <laughs> I literally sent that Iverson loop play to a friend, not in media, just one of my friends in real life, and was like, can you come up with any reason why you would need to play this close? And they're like, they watched it, and they're like, no. The Raptors have that elbow alignment they ran last year where 
they go to different things depending on how close they're playing Jakob. And and Jakob has different automatics he would go to. But yeah, I mean, it's much easier if you don't force into the counter, if you just like... And even the the second Iverson loop, which was, you know, I'm, I was surprised they ran it twice out of ATOs, but they ran it for Pascal and Pascal came off of it. Pascal didn't come open. I can't remember who was guarding him, but they had their back turned and Jakob lobbed it into the paint. It bounced, hit the defender. Pascal picked it up and put it in. Yes. Obi was guarding right. him and Obi tried to cheat that one and Obi had no idea where the ball, the ball was. See man, see ball is like uh, written on the, the textbook of basketball or something like that. Um, yeah. But I, I guess going back to like the Raptors offensive approach, any any other points? Like, I, I guess let's focus on Dennis a little bit. What have you thought? I know you've seen maybe it's like three or four games of the Raptors and certainly last night's. What have you thought of Dennis who has a lot of the ball? Has a lot of touches, has a lot of touch time. What have you thought about him initiating the Raptors offense? I think it's a double-edged sword. Sure. I think in the end of the in-season tournament game against Boston, I watched that one. Do I need Dennis running a horn set with Precious Achua in crunch time? No. That was... I do not. I do not need it. He split. No part of me that it was a good split. It just didn't end up really well, I guess. But I... That's charitable. I so I think it was a good split. I would rather that the Raptors kept going to the big advantages they had prior instead of being mm-hmm. like, let's see what Dennis can wiggle out of at the point of attack, which is obviously what happened. They did get a putback on the one at least, but uh That being said, they did have a terrific a terrific play that I liked a lot against the Pistons, which the Pistons defense is the Pistons defense, but Scotty with the ball, getting a stampede cut for Dennis at the same time as Pascal setting a hammer screen for Gary. That's occupying all those people in a really optimal way. And then Dennis is just so freaking he's quick. Fast. Like if you get him on a stampede cut, he's going to get to the rim. So that, that's a good way to have him and Scotty both involved in having bits of the ball. The thing with Scotty is, and this goes into the conversation with Dennis, and you'll be much more informed of this than I will be, his pick and roll stuff. So if you were to pull up the clip of me from our podcast over the summer, like I, sometimes I'm watching Scotty Barnes and I, I can't believe what I'm watching, honestly. Like I, if you would have told me Scotty's going to shoot 40% on catch and shoot threes and over 50% on pull up twos and that some of the pick and roll stuff's going to look viable. Hell yeah. Like, and though on the flip side of this, that the Raptors half court offense would still be this bad. Like that Scotty <laughs> would make like that big of a leap. So this this is the big thing. The Raptors got huge, massive amounts of possessions from the Fred and Yawk pick and roll. It was just such a, yeah. a good baseline for the offense. And the Schroeder Jakob pick and roll has not a pro like has not been close to that as far as like um I haven't looked at the numbers in a few games, but it, it's just not close. And it would help if Hurdle could catch a pass. Some of that has eluded yeah. him lately. Um, uh, <laughs> Both both uh, Scotty and Pascal are looking at like all the the dead assists that went to heaven um, from because of be it Precious or be it Jakob, of course. Boucher dropping that fake shot from Scotty last night should deserve jail time. <laughs> it's tough, but so like that's the thing. Anyway. Yeah, when you look at the numbers, Scotty's been the Raptors' best pick and roll player, and so well pick and roll scorer. 
And yeah, just best pick and roll player so far by the numbers. Of course, Dennis is like way up in usage compared to everybody else. But Scotty, you look at the Bucks game and the Bucks are playing lock and trail. And that's their scheme. And we talk about this in the regular season all the time. The Raptors, or sorry, teams are going to stick in scheme rather than like, we have this one game, let's go for it. And they ended up winning the game anyway, right? Um, the first time the Raptors played the Bucks, we got a ton of Dennis just cruising past Dame and cruising past Malik. In game two, I thought that Scotty had such a fantastic game because he was they were jump-starting him into the paint. And the big difference, and this was the piece I wrote, like Scotty Barnes is the Raptors' king of the pick and roll, is that Scotty is not some feckless guard who's like, ooh, Brooke Lopez. He's like, give me that. I'm like going to see if I can take, yeah. like climb Splash Mountain. And he does. And we saw like last, was it last season, the big game against the Bucks, where there was like that helter-skelter finish where Scotty was it maybe 17 fourth quarter points and like maybe 12 of those came against Brooke in isolation. Scotty's not scared of the moment. He's not scared of the player. He's not scared of help side. Like we saw him attack Wemby. We've seen him attack Lopez. If you're going to let him go downhill, he's going to challenge the guy laying in wait, be it a dragon or like a, you know, a security guard, whoever's there. And he's also like tremendous at, like he's ambidextrous. He can go to either side of the rim. He can make laydown passes. He can very easily at his height and passing ability skip to the corners or like make that push pass back to above the break. Jump starting him downhill, you're going to lose that. But they haven't played every game against the Bucks. He has beat blitzes. He's beat hedges. He's beat switches. He's beat like high drop. He's beat low drop. He's used the pull-up mid-range to get around it. And golly, man, like that's awesome. I looked at all of his pick and rolls last season. And my takeaway was like, it hasn't been good. And it's because, you know, what we talked about, there's a lot of push switch going on. And he's not like cooking these guys. Guess what? He started cooking. A lot of it helps that he's shooting so well, like on jumpers, of course, that's going to boost and buoy anybody. But there's an improvement in pacing. He's already been, he's been the best passer, like pure passer on the Raptors since the moment he stepped into the NBA, putting him in those advantageous situations where defenses are rotating or giving him a lane. He's just eating it up. So very cool progression. And I would like to see more of that. And I would like, okay. Cause that's what I wanted to talk. And about. I, and I would like to see some of those Dennis possessions turn into not Dennis possessions. And even Pascal's pacing with Jakob in particular in the pick and roll has improved over the past three or four games too. So I think that the Raptors can stand to run more wing initiated pick and rolls and kind of see how Pascal and Scotty make things work out of that. Especially since, as you talked about, like coordinating these cuts for Dennis, if you have the, if you have the big out of the paint, um, he's really quick and he's done a hell of a job putting pressure um, this year. So putting him off ball might help. I spoke too long. Go ahead, please. Okay, so I have thoughts about this. It's much harder to lose a reputation as a shooter than it is to gain one. Oh. And yet I watch it. I watch it, and there's so many teams going over already against Scotty, just through this first early sample size, which is really, like, astonishing to me. And then also, like, I've, I've watched most of his pick-and-roll possessions. I have not seen every game. But, like, if he does see an under, like, against Dallas, he's just bashing the heck out of the guy. 
So it's not as concerning as it was when I watched the stuff between he and Pirtle last year. But like, I think you pointed out the clip, but I saw it as well against the Bucks when they, he saw that next and actually dribbled away from it and drug out the defense a little bit. Like that, that you were not seeing in the clip, the film that, that I was a watched perfect last year. You play. obviously watch. That was like. You obviously watched all of it, but. I, I had not seen that. Like, I, I don't know. Some of the progressions from him are just very surprising to me. He's been a pleasure to watch. But I'm going to slightly play devil's advocate. I kind of understand where Darko is coming from to a degree, simply because you can get into the sets quicker with Dennis than you can get into them with Pascal or Scotty. And then point number two, this is going to seem really Midwestern, actually a business adage, but the adage being pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered. I kind of wonder if that applies here. That like it's okay to be profitable. It's not okay to be greedy. So like when I watched this, the Raptors play the game against the Sixers, they ran three Spain pick and rolls with Scotty. The first one, the first one, I remember. I think Jakob was the initial ball screener. I don't remember who the back screener was, but the Sixers screw it up. There's a miscommunication. Scotty uses a really special like alternating stride links, waltzes right to the rim and scores. Later that quarter, they run it again, and now they switch it accurately. He finds a pocket for Jakob. Jakob has to try to score against Embiid and ends up like getting his hook shot blocked. So no real advantage gained there. By the end of the game, they run it again. And now the Sixers have made the adjustment, which they do a lot with Embiid because Embiid doesn't want to get out of the paint and guard people, really. But beside the point, the Sixers put Embiid on Pascal. Pascal is in the, is in the ball side corner. P.J. Tucker, before he got traded, is guarding Jakob. They switch, switch, switch. Now Scotty can't get downhill, and Embiid is pulled all the way over off of Pascal. So I wonder, this is similar to something that I used to say a lot about the Pacers, that people would always be like, oh, the Pacers are playing Brooke Lopez in drop, or they're playing Vucevic in drop. Just why aren't they just running pick and pop with Miles Turner all the time? Like, those are going to be open free shots, and that's easy to assemble offense. I'm like, because if you hit that button too many times, they're not going to keep guarding it like that. They're going to make an adjustment. And the Pacers at the time, Miles has improved at this now. But back then, it's like if they start switching it, they're getting nothing. Like if, if the team starts switching the pick and pop, Miles is not going to dive into it and it's going to screw up the rest of their offense. So holistically, it's better to sprinkle that in once or twice and leave it alone. So I do wonder from Darko's perspective, if you started tilting a lot more pick and roll towards Scotty, what adjustments would other teams make? And it wouldn't necessarily be totally about Scotty, but who else is on the floor and how those teams start guarding it that it may not be to your benefit to press the button on it a lot. So that's why when I watch it, even though sometimes I'm like, how in the world is this game ending with Dennis trying to ISO Miles Turner in space? Like, that's absurd, given how Pascal and Scotty have played. But then I think about it, I'm like, well, the Pacers probably aren't going to make a defensive adjustment. <laughs> but other teams might. So that that's that's where I go from. Pigs get fed. I think you do a little bit more of it, and it's profitable. I think you do a lot more of it, hogs get slaughtered. That's kind of how I, I have not uh, used that same saying, but what you mentioned it's somewhat inhumane, uh, what you mentioned about the Raptors and Darko in particular, prioritizing pace in the offense. Um, I've like appealed to that quite a basically after every single podcast, when people ask like, Hey, what's going on with the offense? Why, why so many guard touches? It's like, well, guards get into stuff quicker and you get to run that second action the second side stuff at 12 or 13 seconds instead of maybe seven or eight, uh, maybe nine even. And that's meaningful because maybe the, maybe the trade-off is that the points per possession of, I guess, like a, a Dennis pick and roll is a lot lower, but maybe the second side stuff, um, I haven't looked at this, 
this is just the hypothetical from like appealing to, hey, Darko's thinking about this because coaches think about a lot. Uh, the second side stuff might have a little bit more um, fruit to bear, all that kind of stuff. So there's they've found over the past little stretch a decent equilibrium between guard initiation, wing initiation, and of course that has featured a lot more Pascal as far as like initiating through the post. And Pascal has been unbelievable in the post. I haven't looked at the numbers in a couple games, but he's been, I think it would be hard to argue, he hasn't been one of the five best initiators there. I want to take us back to a conversation we had almost two years ago, which was the the loving basketball episode we did where we were talking about how the post is undergoing a reinvention and that it is becoming quickly one of the best playmaking hubs in the NBA and that the post seems antiquated, but because of how teams defend it now and their somewhat like unfamiliarity with like their post automatics defensively and their inability to zone up properly and to scheme guys out of the post, how it's become like this dominant place to create big advantages from that has been really exercised by Pascal and the Raptors. What have you made of Pascal, the post hub and the Raptors kind of hitching their wagon back to that after the start of the season? Yeah, I mean, I think it needed to go back to that. You just need to be able to find a medium where you're still able to do some of this stuff with Scotty, where neither of them's getting marginalized by the other person. So, and I think that they did that somewhat last night because I like their rotation better. Good rotation. Some of the lineups where it's Scotty and four bench players have been absolutely horrific. Gasly, Gasly. He had one. Like he had second... one good game with it, and it was against Detroit. Uh, they they went to always two starters on the floor at all times last night, which is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Because that second quarter against Boston, when Darko benched Pascal for almost the entire second, when he was in foul trouble and like tried to foul his out, his own player or whatever, those minutes were terrible. And the spacing was really bad. Like playing Boucher and precious and Jalen McDaniels all at the same with time with Scotty was some of the most stagnant offense I've ever seen. But last night when Scotty's out there with OG and you're doing it with Malachi, which, you know, Malachi had a fairly decent game for again, because I mean, why Tyrese like why Malachi makes two shots and Tyrese is like I'm gonna go stick my arm and gamble in this passing lane I don't freaking know but those lineups and who else was out there it was Boucher Scotty OG Malachi and uh who am I missing uh G- Gary oh uh yeah Gary Gary yeah. Gary yeah yeah so those those groups looked considerably better so I think that's kind of a way where you could you know titrate up some of what Scotty's doing in the pick and roll. And then when you're playing lineups where it's staggered and you bring Pascal back in, then it can all be post, 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 which last night there was every reason in the world for, to be initiating through Pascal. That's where the advantages were going to be. That's why before the game even started, I was like, this is going to be hit the panic button. Like if the Raptors can't come into this game without Andrew Nemhard and without Aaron Neesmith and find where the advantages are on the floor, then that would be like rock bottom to me. Like I, I felt pretty good about the Raptors chances in that game last yeah. night. Like, I thought it was funny because I said something about, like, this isn't a Pirtle game. And Lewis replied to me, he's like, this isn't a Raptors game. I was like, I feel pretty good about this. Like, I think, like, from the Raptors' perspective, I thought they were going to have a pretty good chance just because I know where some of the Once, once they cleaned up the at, turnovers, but... I mean, like, there was obviously that 13-point lead early. Yeah. But uh, when I was watching that game, I got the sense just because of what the Raptors were getting into, Indiana's lack of punch defensively to move them off of some of the stuff i was like uh some of these layups that fall off the rim are gonna fall in 
and these look like good possessions, they're going to catch up. Yeah. And also the fact that like the first three that Indiana made, Obi Toppin probably didn't see the rim. Like he saw Pascal's hand for a duration of three full seconds and he it just went up and over. I was like, they've played some good defensive possessions. OG will find his way against Tyrese. They'll have a response and they'll get back into it. Just to mention like a huge motivator of the Raptors win. OG Ananobi, Chris Boucher, Gary Trent Jr., Malachi Flynn, Scotty Barnes. We got 10 and a half minutes of that lineup. They played 43 possessions. They scored 30 points. They gave up 24. Winning like OG Scotty plus bench by six points over 10 and a half minutes, massive. We also got six minutes of Jakob, Pascal, Schroeder, Otto, Gary. They won that six-minute stretch by eight points. This is the Raptors working in their bench. These are the transitional lineups. Both of them worked really, really well. We've seen incredible numbers for like if Pascal's on the floor, he's typically and like Scotty and OG are off of it. Miraculously, those lineups have done just like I think they're a small negative. So you have Scotty off the floor, who's been by the numbers your best player this season. You have OG off the floor, who's been by the numbers one of the most positive players in the NBA for years. And Pascal kind of trying to lift a guy who's been a negative, Jakob, and Dennis pairing along with him. Getting like drawing even on those lineups is a big deal. And then OG and Scotty like just hammering dudes. And they hammered Indiana last night. Super big deal. Like that is a path against Indiana that worked, yes, but it also seems like a path that can work against other teams. Maybe not every team, but that seems like you're starting to pad out a rotation a little bit. And obviously their starters have to uh we'll see. I don't know. But their starters have to No, those those hybrid minutes were yeah. huge. And in part because the lineups that the Pacers were playing, like almost every lineup they were playing last night wouldn't have been a lineup they've played before. In part because they they just changed their starting lineup to what I think is their best lineup the prior game with Aaron at the four and Buddy healed back in the starting lineup. And then the very next game, they're having to put Obi back in, but Buddy still stayed. And then they're playing Jordan Wara, who's basically only played in garbage time. And he had a pretty rough game overall. So, and then Andrew's not off the bench. So a lot of those groupings were rather rough. So that gave the Raptors an advantage as it is, but like you could see like three straight possessions where when they put Scotty and OG involved in the pick and roll with Tyrese, because Tyrese was playing with those groups at the beginning of the fourth, that it was taking them out of their Spain actions. And like Jalen was getting those switches, but Buddy is so hesitant as a post-entry passer that like that's how they got that defensive three seconds called. That or I mean offensive three seconds because Jalen was just standing in the lane. And then like they got nothing out of it like three times in a row, which is pretty hard. Like typically when Buddy's leaking out as a stack screener, that's why they just run wide stack like 20 times a game because like it's pretty much free points. But they switched across it pretty well. Like I I thought that was fairly successful for them. Let's talk about we talked about being like hell yeah, Scotty, steps taken as a shooter. If 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 Scotty normalizes at where he's at right now, he's taken one of the best third lead, uh, third year shooting leaps we've seen in maybe like the twentieth century, uh, from like a high usage wing. It's like even Kawhi is an example. Tatum shot as soon as he came into the league. Like it would be like a immense immense jump. So credit to him. We talked about the improvement against different uh, coverages in the pick and roll. I want to talk about that defense because we saw him at the five. He has been, by EPM, the most impactful defender so far this year. I'm sure people don't rate him that, that high. But a lot of people I see talk about, you know, like, ooh, he's on the, the road to, like, all defense level impact. 
maybe a selection someday, right? What have you thought about Scotty, who's been moved lower into the defense now and is more able to play instinctually and is more able to be kind of a defensive playmaker, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good contrast because I was doing this video piece because the Pacers got absolutely wrecked by empty side pick and rolls between Maxi and Embiid in their first game against oh, yeah. Philadelphia because yes. they were defending it two versus two and got wrecked. So I was looking around the league at how other teams defended that same action, and I got to the Raptors, and whenever Scotty was guarding Tobias Harris above the break, as soon as Embiid caught it, because that has been a good innovation by Nick Nurse, that rather than doing post-entry passes to Embiid, they roll him into space into post-up, so it's not sapping as much clock. As soon as Embiid would get that catch, Scotty would come all the way over as a roamer. And I was like, he's doing a lot as a roamer, but also like I've watched games where like their defense against Dame was really bad. That, <laughs> so she wasn't available. That sucked, man. But, they but like, yeah, I mean, he was splitting everything. They tried to set an edge. edge. They gave too much room. When they didn't set an edge, he just blew it up. And he, like, Dame has been a phenomenal driver this year. Like, he, the, the driving aspect of his game, the, the pull up three hasn't been where they want it to be, but he's still at 32. Who he can split. Man point being though is like they did try scotty quite to get against at the point of attack and then he was defending at the center last night so i mean he's been doing a lot of different roles at least in the games that i've watched so overall like i don't know if i'm incorrect in this but like the games that i've watched i feel like Pirtle isn't as good in his positioning as he was last year i don't really understand the level that they drop him at in certain games i would be adjusting that depending upon the matchups because like last night i felt like he was too high at certain points when he needed to be lower and that he wasn't high enough when Tyrese was coming up to rise and fire they needed to be playing him at the level or at least up to a touch and then I also think Pascal hasn't been quite as impactful as I've seen him in the past but I think that Scotty and OG have been Scotty and OG as good so Pascal has been on like a a slow decline defensively since I think 2019-20 that season yeah where he was like sublime and especially he had that really bad bubble as far as like scoring the ball but there's there's a big difference in how he's used this season compared to last season like he and scotty for all intents and purposes have switched and so pascal is getting a lot more of those he's running above the break a lot of stuff and he's playing in a lot of a lot more screening actions and he's doing all that kind of stuff and as far as like containment it's he's worse at containment than he is as a roamer as far as like containment he's not going to be the best wing defender on the roster at doing that and as far as like um sticking he's been back cut a few times it's not every game but you can see it happen like a healthy amount this season and still you'll get those possessions where like he's sticking guys and he's rotating properly and all this kind of stuff but it's been he's certainly not where he was is like the easiest way to put it, I would say. But- yeah, because the really deep three that Tyrese made was you can't, you have to deny the boomerang pass back to Tyrese. You can't let him get the ball back. So he let him get it back pretty easily. And then Buddy does what he always does, which as soon as somebody plays Tyrese close, he just runs across it like he's lighting a match and Pascal slightly hesitates back. And then Tyrese pulls the string. That was so like, that's what I wondered. Like, how much is Scotty taking a step forward defensively? having a negative impact on what you're doing with Pascal Siakam. Well, Pascal. Because the defense overall hasn't been as good as I thought it was going to be. I think the the big problem is that they're Jakob is the big difference obviously. Um like how he's being 
implemented as you, you know we talked about the levels that he's guarding at like is he high is he low is he a bit slow when he's high like i've talked to Jakob about that post game where he's like he's like i didn't meet the guys in the right space i didn't make drivers get wide on some of these angles and like i'm allowing too much easy stuff to happen and like when i'm setting an edge i'm setting it too far out and i'm making an easy split like all this kind of stuff and Jakob last season was like a a revelation he changed so much of what the raptors were doing and with scotty being able to lean into this role and like that's the thing scotty is better at the role that pascal siakam used to occupy than pascal is now so that switch makes a ton of sense i'm very happy that scotty is in a more complimentary role he's killing it he's been tremendous it also puts pascal in a similar role that scotty was in last year where you're guarding a ton of actions on ball. You're the big wing trying to stick around with the quicker guys. And that can lead to blow buys. That can lead to a lot more coverage above the break in like rotation, trying to track three point shooters. And that can lead to obviously difficulties. And Pascal, as far as like uh, his impact is, is not where it was, but uh, he's in a tough spot defensively because OG gets to lean into the things he's good at. Scotty gets to lean into the things he's good at now. And Pascal kind of has to try and keep up on the perimeter. Whereas you see guys age and typically it's the inverse. They get lower in the defense. Whereas like Pascal's now like stepping up higher into the defense, which is tough. Um, like we saw, uh, I, it went viral where Tyrese, I can't remember who was guarding him, Malik Beasley, where he pointed for a screen and then Malik like, got ready for a screen that wasn't coming or a screen was coming, but Tyrese just pushed instead. And everyone's like, wow, he's a genius. He pointed for a screen. Um, he did the same thing to Pascal. Like he pointed left and Pascal was like checked for the screen and then Tyrese was gone. Buddy shaped up to the drive came above. He collapsed the defense then went above the break. It's like he's being asked to guard a lot of uh, stuff at the top, which you also have to know that Tyrese loves rejecting screens. He's pretty much not going to use screens. He rejects them more than I think everybody in the NBA except for Jalen Brunson. And some of that's because Jalen's lefty. Like some of that relates to that for Jalen. But Ty- Tyrese very rarely uses screens. He loves putting the defense in rotation. So He's, I, he was a masterful. Here's something we can talk about. So advantage assists. I really like paying attention to advantage assists because not all assists are created equal. I know NBA Underground has, uh, like, it's not hand-tracked, but they're pulling data, and he has something that's called a high-value assist. And so high-value assist, what that means is it led to a three or a layup, basically. Um, I don't like those two being grouped together because threes and layups are not created equally. Um, a layup for most people is a really good look. A three can, re- the efficacy of it can really change depending on who's shooting it and uh, coverage and all that kind of stuff. So I like going for advantage assist because that is when somebody creates a really good look for somebody else based on their motion and based on their passing ability. Of Tyrese's 15 assists, how many do you think were advantage assists? Trying to think how many you would have had where he just would have passed to Buddy in a spot up situation. You are following the I'm, right line of thinking. I'm telling you that right now. 
Yeah, because, I mean, there are certain games where, like, depending upon how de- teams g- guard the Spain pick and roll, like, Tyrese is going to use a jump pass. He's going to look somebody off and shift the defender, and then that's creating an advantage for Buddy that otherwise wouldn't have been there. But then there's other games where Buddy's, like, going to be a ghost screener. That creates hesitation that Tyrese isn't necessarily creating for himself, and then just Buddy spotting up. And that's, like, sometimes this becomes, like, a talking point, like, especially last year when there was debates between who should be an all-star between Tyrese and Jalen, and people were like, barely any of Tyrese's assists are even, like, they're within the flow of the offense, so they're just a Buddy Heald. I'm like, so he should be punished because Buddy Heald's a good player and he's making the right play? Like, that's that's silliness to me. But if I had to guess, I'd say half. So I can't, I don't know off the top of my head. I'm going to, I have a fun little term. Uh, My friend, he'll remain nameless. He calls Indiana an assist farm, uh, <laughs> which I think is like a funny term. Uh, nine, nine advantage assists. And okay. almost. So I was close. So the transition one to Obi doesn't count, uh, where Obi really like great high finish with the left over Pascal, if you remember that play. That doesn't count because it's not half court, but nine advantage assists. And basically anything that wasn't an advantage assist was a handoff to Buddy and Buddy just being insane. Buddy, yeah. It's he's covered and covered pretty well. That pump pound and back up. Yep. Lightning quick. Lightning quick. He's so fast getting the ball up and he just shoots the hell out of the ball. I'm so deeply envious. So envious that you get to watch Buddy heal just for years. And I know he's been like talked about as a trade option for years but he makes offense look so easy he just makes basketball look so easy he's incredible the pacer the pacers love buddy i mean i got asked that on a show a year or a year ago a week ago when i was on the ricky somebody was like well buddy asked for a trade i'm like buddy didn't ask for a trade like they just didn't come to terms on what they wanted in a contract extension and he didn't feel desirable about that and that obviously got publicized like i think he would be perfectly fine continuing to play with tyrese and rick carlisle's offense for a very long time and i think the pacers would love to keep him around i mean obviously like it got it was a talking point uh, what game was it? Oh, the in-season tournament game against Philly where he was one of five and he was still in the closing lineup. I'm like, because he gets defended by, as a shooter, regardless of whether he makes mm-hmm. shots. Like he has, he has a different degree of gravity than literally anybody else on the team. And Ben's had his ups and downs. So he bends the defense like crazy. The, the Raptors were chasing him around like their hair was on fire. He just, and he's still like, they, they had such, they played good defense on him. I found and especially Schroeder late. Some of those closeouts were incredible by Schroeder late. Like the closeout and contain, he really, really brought it. But yeah, Buddy getting up like almost eight threes a game on 43%. Uh, obviously, last night is like close to a high watermark because he was insanity. But And because of how the Raptors were loading up on Tyrese. But there you go, man. He, he impresses me endlessly. Like endlessly, that guy. That's a reason why they were the number one assist combo on made threes last year. They know each other really well, and Tyrese has magnetized for him. Like, it really does build out what they do in, in transition because Buddy knows the right speed to run at in transition. Like, they want to create those two side fast break situations. So, if you're running at the 45, like being able to sprint ahead and then be able to slow down to meet the pace of the ball and his ability to stay on balance and, and just pop, like, he does so much for a transition offense. It's really really incredible to when watch. he locks in like the legs get set he swings that right leg into place i feel like a truck mm-hmm. could hit him and not move him 
that's how on balance he looks he he uh yeah i've kind of like been obsessing over buddy a ton but i have liked his game a lot for a long time lewis wrote i think for the 538 you guys former colleagues of the 538 you and lewis i think he wrote something about buddy a few years he ago. did i read it he wrote it about buddy's secondary skills coming to the forefront after he got traded from sacramento to indiana i read have it. you uh have you thought the secondary skills coming to the forefront has been important and impactful yeah i mean buddy's passing has been better than ever this year because they had to like out of necessity because of andrew's kidney stone and because tyrese sat out the first two games of preseason buddy was playing point guard a lot behind tj mcconnell so he had to be initiating offense. And like there was a stretch where he had a block as a secondary rim protector and then got the rebound and brought it up and had a wraparound pass. Like he's just made a lot of different types of passes. Like he's added stuff to his game that I don't think people always always credit him for. He even had like some decent, do I want Pascal backing him from 20 to eight feet without anybody bringing help? No, but he had some decent defensive possessions on his own last night. I do think he's gotten a little bit better in certain areas. Getting a little more stout over time. I think is something that happens for a lot of guys like that. Um, an interesting thing. I want to talk about miles. Okay. Because Raptors fans, when they say like, ah, oh, Jakob can't shoot. You can imagine who the center that always comes up is like miles Turner, the same way that Kenneth Fareed for when the Raptors went years and years and years without having a good power forward. Kenneth Freed used to come up all the time. And obviously Miles is a better player over his career than Kenneth was over his, but Miles is always the guy who comes up. Uh, what have you thought of Miles' performance so far this year? And what have you thought about the maybe limitations of that big roaming big man uh, who has like really impressive rim deterrence skills uh, in the middle of a maybe dysfunctional defense? I don't know. Is dysfunctional rude or is that polite? I'm not sure. They have the worst defense in the NBA. They're the number one offense in the 30th ranked defense. I think it's fine. They're giving, up the most, they're giving up the most points in the paint. So I think it's, I think it's fine. Um, I will say that like overall, I don't believe in the concept of a stretch five in terms of like that stretching the rim protector. I think it takes, it takes Jokic, sometimes Kristaps Porzingis because he can pull from 30. And sometimes when Vucevic is like really hot, yeah. where a rim protector might take some steps out and open driving lanes. There are games where if Miles starts hitting shots, where you'll see opponents start stunting at him from the weak side. And then because like to bring up Buddy again, because a lot of times the Pacers will play Buddy adjacent to pick and pop back then that becomes like a cheat code so if his defender goes it's you know cut the stunt or he's just right there and he can hit a three and then like maybe Tyrese even uses some eye manipulation and then it's a wide open three for Buddy so that's valuable and I I do think that like if you wanted to use Scotty more in like empty side pick and rolls the ones that I watch between him and Pirtle like he doesn't usually access the other side of the floor like I'm not going to see a lot of Scotty Barnes having a lot of bend and being able to snake his dribble in front of ice coverage. But if you had somebody picking and popping behind him as the answer to ice coverage, that would be more functional than just having Jakob dive into his space where then Scotty runs out of real estate. So in certain circumstances like that, Miles has become a complimentary scorer. He's mainly a play finisher. You're not going to initiate a lot of things through him, but he he made strides in that area last night or last year. I did not like last night when they ran uh once Jakob came off the floor, I don't understand. I think that Tyrese probably could have been a little bit better in terms of who was being used as a screener. I don't really know why they weren't going at Gary Trent Jr., why they weren't going at Schroeder and getting those guys involved in action. So they're like, hey, let's get a post up for Miles where he misses a hook shot. Like, I, 
no, I don't need a lot of that. Although he's done a little bit more of that in wedge actions. But as far as like the defense, this is going to be controversial and I'll tread lightly, but I don't think he's been to his level as a defender. I, I think that there was a little bit of drop off last year and I think it showed up a little bit more already this season where I think if the Pacers had their way with it, they would have somebody else at the four spot. And that's probably in part why Neesmith is starting so that they can put that guy on fives and switch the ball screens and keep miles out of them. Because a lot of the two on two versus two stuff. Yes. A lot of it has to do with the point of attack, but not all of it. I mean, you probably saw last night, miles turned his back to the ball. Like he didn't even know where the ball was in pick and roll coverage. Like there was a time where he was dominant at swallowing up pick and rolls especially under Nate McMillan when they kept his radius closer to the basket. I don't, I don't know. Maybe he gets back to that level. Maybe it was somewhat because of his, his foot issues that he's had, but like that game against Atlanta, he didn't play in the fourth quarter. They had to go to full court trapping and they played Isaiah Jackson for the ground coverage and Isaiah Jackson's the third string center. So like, I don't think it's complete total drop off. He still closes space very well. He's had like a game winning block. He can still rotate over. I just don't think he's been as good in pick and roll as he's been in the past. That's notable. The point you bring up about like no real stretch five is true. Uh, you could like everyone has been masquerading as a stretch big. Everybody since forever, and teams for some. You you talked about you know it's so much harder to earn a reputation as a shooter than it is to lose it. And your pin tweet on Eric Gordon is like if anybody wants to have a further exploration of that idea, just go read it, uh, C2 underscore Cooper. Uh, it's something to pay attention to, of course. I'm so interested in how teams going forward, as shooters get better and better, like with Chet and Wemby coming in, Wemby has underperformed, I think his three-point shooting per stroke if, as far as percentage than most people expected. But Miles is kind of like the knee-jerk reaction to like, who's a stretch five that isn't a superstar? Everyone immediately, like, it's that guy. And the fact that he, of course, has a different effect on spacing than Jakob does, but he doesn't have this, like, oh, he pulls the, the big all the way out, all the time type of effect, speaks to the fact that NBA defenses, almost no matter who you're playing, uh, they're going to make sure that, you know, like, that guy shoots it. And um, I think... Port. I think that there's been there's been a journey to this though sure. because like I don't know did you ever did you watch the series between the Pacers and the Hawks when it was like the Pacers with Roy Hibbert and David West yep. and and Paul George and okay so Perro Antich had a stretching effect in that series he should not have they should have been like if if we get killed by Perro Antich drilling threes we get killed by Perro Antich drilling threes but Roy Hibbert kept trying to go out from the paint and then Jeff Teague and all those other guys were just getting to the lane I think there became a tipping point in the NBA where they were like we don't have to react to this. That's what we're willing to give yeah. up. And a lot of games, like the Celtics even said this a year ago, Miles made like seven threes in that game. And they're like, yeah, that's what we wanted to do. Like, that's what we were willing to give up. So yeah, what is the tipping point? Because I think that there are even defenses now with stretch fours where it's like a 34% shot from a stretch four where we can keep our defense out of rotation and we may not have to X out. Heck yeah, shoot that shot. Yep. Especially like, above the break stuff. Like teams went from... I don't know if the NBA was late on this for a little while or like the world was late on this, but everyone said that corner threes were easier and everyone cared, but they still defended above the break threes for a time like, oh my God, a shooter. And you could look at the disparity between like a shooter in the corner and a shooter in, above the break, even within the same player, and they would generate the same response, the same closeout in both locations for a time. 
And as you said, like teams, the NBA as a whole kind of was like, uh, maybe this isn't tenable defensively. And I think that's definitely we've seen a big change as far as that goes. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's what I said. <laughs> Well, anyway, so Pero Antich is a really good inflection point for that, I suppose. I do wonder what the Raptors do trying to carve out space um, to, to kind of like hammer your point home a lot as well, is that the Raptors, when they played Boston the first time, really respected Chris Stapps, and that led to way too many driving lanes for Tatum and Brown in game two that they probably would have won if Pascal had played more than 28 minutes. Uh, they made Porzingis like, hey, the pressure's on you to become a shot maker more often. And they were able to stay out of rotation more often, give up less driving lanes. The defense as a whole was much, much better. It's an important aspect of basketball. Yeah. Fun question, though. I do have yeah. a question. So, like, let's pretend that they were, like, Pascal stays, they sign him to an extension. This is just sure. hypothetical. And, and they like the fit between Scotty and Pascal. If you were, like, just as an archetype, not necessarily a specific player, what would you want a center and what center would you want out there with them? Or would you just want it to be Scotty at the five? Or would you, like, who would you want? What type of a player? I want an elite. Whatever whatever happens with Pascal is second to what happens with Scotty regarding this team's future. Mm -hmm. It's imperative that the Raptors don't lose Pascal for nothing. I'll say that much. Mm -hmm. But it's it's imperative they don't lose Pascal. It's imperative they don't lose OG. Um, I don't know what happens with Gary, but it's imperative that that doesn't happen. It's also imperative saying that word a lot, that they pair Scotty with an elite point guard at some point during his career. Anything, any decision-making they do going forward, uh, I think replacement-level centers, I think, like, you know, maybe you try and hit on a big man who's played a decent amount of, uh, you know, like, basketball on a good contract. Maybe it's something like, Maybe you're taking swings on biannual exception guys. Maybe you're taking swings on mid-level exception guys. Uh, I'm not really sure. I think you try and go budget center unless there's like a superstar there. You try and go budget center instead of medium center and you try and like max out somebody in the guard situation. Because as we talked about uh, regarding like sitting off of Jakob is that if they had a dynamic guard like Buddy Heald, for example, who can, you know, eat that space up off of the DHOs. It doesn't have to be Jakob. It could be Scotty in that DHO action. And they could run like a ton of actions. Like you could build out, I think, a very strong offense with Scotty plus elite guard or like a really good guard. This is why people asked me, I think two or three episodes ago, uh, reaction pods ago, like, hey, Nemhard or Ivy? And I was like, ooh, I like Nemhard a lot with Scotty because they probably aren't going to have an opportunity to draft like in the lottery, maybe like to try and grab that star guard. This year's supposed to be a weak draft class. You have to try and grab a guard who has a higher potential than most people think. And that can like move those Scotty possessions into like, you know, something about pigs getting fed, hogs getting slaughtered. Like you need to put Scotty in a role where he gets to work off of a really good guard who can put defenses in similar coverages that he'll see if he were paired with an elite one and get some of those reps in. And Nemhard would be a really good example of that. So the the center position, maybe they can cheap out, maybe they can do whatever, especially with Scotty being able to helm that situation in these in-betweener lineups. 
Uh, I just want him to play with an elite guard at some point. That is my earnest hope for Scotty and the Raptors. I know that's not a perfect answer. It sounds like I've propagandized you to Andrew Nemhart. I said that actually, too. While I was answering, I was like, I read Caitlin's work on Andrew Nemhart. I've watched a bit of Andrew Nemhart. Wait, 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 wait. Pause. I saw you share a tweet that said that you do not read. No, no, I said I said I don't the basketball content. And now you just said I read Caitlin's work about Andrew Nemhart. So this is a contradiction. So if you listen to that episode, I said I will watch things that my close friends do. And I listed about four people that I read or listen to in the whole world. And you will note, though you did not see it, you will note that your name was on that list. I have uh I have no problem. But like podcasts, no podcasts. I, I, I can't do basketball podcasts. If somebody has worked on like a piece and I know they're like an intelligent basketball person, I'm like, hell yeah, I'll read it. But yeah, I, I don't spend I don't spend my time like taking in basketball stuff, but I have. So you've you've never listened to me on a podcast that, that you and I haven't done. You've never listened to me record a podcast. <sighs> I'm certain I have. You sent me that <laughs> podcast. You sent me an episode. You used to send me episodes and give me timestamps. So that's that's so true. yes, I have. But you had to do the legwork, and then I'm like, okay, I'll listen, and then I'll give you feedback. That's kind of the that's fair. But anyways, I've propagandized you to Andrew Nemhart. Right. It seems, but like, what's the point? But you probably don't listen to that much stuff either, right? I do not. I, when I started out, I did. I consumed a lot of it. And there are a handful of people that I really enjoy. Some just for even just the writing aspect. Sure. Like I'll read Dan Favalli and Rob Mahoney all the time. I read you and Lewis's stuff regularly. And I'm not going to pay for stuff that I'm not going to read. Like I pay for Raptors Republic. If I pay for it, I'm going to read it. But I listen to your podcast sometimes when I have time. Just like I pulled it up the other day. I was like, oh, I'll listen to what he has to say about this. And he saw something that's how, that's how. I... <laughs> but that's how I knew who you were. Because I knew Blake first, and Blake was doing a podcast ahead of the time when Nate Bjorken was hired, and it was the two-game head-to-head between the Pacers and the Raptors, and I was like, oh, Blake's doing a podcast, and I, I didn't know what Raptors Republic was. I just listened to it. I was out on a walk, and I was like, that guy has a really interesting way about talking about basketball. You're like, that guy's way so smarter are. than Blake about basketball. I thought you were smarter than me. Oh, okay. That's enough. Anyway, so we're talking about basketball. I, I do want to see Scotty paired with like a point guard. I do want to see Scotty paired with like any manner of really good players. Right now, he's paired with Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi, Jakob Pertl, and Dennis Schroeder in the starting lineup. Watching that starting lineup, OG and Pascal are expiring. Not restricted expiring, just straight up expiring. I'm gonna I'm gonna lean on you here from the outsider's perspective. What do you hope happens with the Raptors going into the future? Any expectations? I mean, over the summer, I I will admit I was wrong, and I'm happy to be wrong. But Scotty's already exceeded my expectations. He's from great. What I thought I was going to see from him this season, so that's been tremendous. So I I think that there's a clip of me on the internet saying like this feels purgatorial, and I understand that you have to sign all these people back, but Scotty's the future, and like you probably need to go into rebuild mode. That being said, I think that there was an easier way to walk that line. I don't really understand waiting to see if an all NBA player fits with a coach. I would have extended him. And then if I needed to trade him later, I would trade him later. I think that this is a pretty dicey situation because I, I, we didn't talk that much about OG and I don't know how he feels about things, but like 
with what you're getting from Scotty and Pascal, it doesn't make sense to tilt a lot his way. So I don't, I don't know. You're really going to have to know where his head's at. I guess I'll put it that way. Like you're going to have to hope that that relationship and that communication is very open and you understand it because you, you cannot let him walk next summer and keep him past the trade deadline and you've gotten nothing in return. Um, So do I think that this is a contending team? Absolutely not. Am I confident they're going to be a playoff team? No. Like I do, I think they could maybe get into a play in tournament and with the right matchups, get into the playoffs potentially. Yeah. But is it probably a first round out? Yeah. So at that point, like, do you want to get as much as you can to build around Scotty? Probably so. Cause like, I mean, the Pacers were in a better position to leverage when they decided that they needed to veer toward the rebuild, which was obvious because you couldn't optimize any one person with that group of people. And that's kind of how this feels too. Like sometimes it works and it's copacetic, but is anyone fully optimized to the degree that they could be? I, I don't know that the answer is yes there. So if the answer is no, then you would ideally have already done this because like they got off of Sabonis, which I like Sabonis a lot. I like watching him with the Kings, but like they had two years left on his contract. So Tyrese was an option, which was very fortuitous of them that Tyrese was an option. But you're not going to get as much now for Pascal as you would have got a year ago. I, I really feel strongly about that. And it's not even a consequence of his play. It's a consequence of his contract status. So yeah. uh, it's tough, man. Because as you, as you say, people can haggle about where the Raptors will fit between like the sixth seed and the twelfth. Um you know, probably not reaching the sixth, probably not sitting at 12. People will argue and discuss that. But if you put it in, like, get down to brass tacks and say, could this team get out of the first round? Really tough to see that happening. Uh, it's it's interesting. Uh, my prediction is that Pascal Siakam is not a Raptor by next season. And I hope that Pascal goes somewhere where he competes and tries to get, like, a title. And if he if Pascal is on the team, just as well. Uh, I love watching Pascal Siakam play. I think even though the point you make about not everyone not being optimized is poignant. That's a good one. It doesn't mean that the players aren't good. It doesn't mean that the players are responsible for shortcomings. It doesn't mean that the players yeah. are bad. When the team fails, it doesn't mean that like everything falls on one player. It doesn't mean that one player is the downfall of a system. It just means that maybe this isn't the best collection of like talent to work together, the best collection of skill sets. And it's easiest, I think, to see Pascal as the guy who breaks away. And we have a, a, <laughs> a comment from Taco and Nacho Battle Channel that says, Samson, you better say we're getting assets back for a departing Pascal. They better, yeah. If Pascal's departing and they don't get anything back, I know people on the Raptors, like Fred has been good for the Rockets so far this year. Fred is not, like nobody's going to tell you that Fred is going to make like $40 million a year and that's a home run contract for the team that signed him. But he's been good. The Rockets are comfortable with that. The Raptors messed up not getting anything back for Fred. I think that's objective. If they let Pascal go and got nothing back, back back-to-back years, that is, that's not like borderline malpractice. That is malpractice. Um, also say quickly, there's 80 people in the chat. Like the video. It helps suggest it to other people. Uh, that's important. It helps support the channel. And it's free and it's good. All that good stuff. But Caitlin, what would your response be if Pascal was like, hey, uh, I'm going to sign elsewhere. And 
even if it was like a sign and trade situation, would you be disappointed with the Raptors from like the front office point of view? How could you not yeah. be? That would be a massive compounding mistake. I mean, because this is all going back to last year. They, I, I don't want to use a, a phrase that would be inappropriate to say, so I have to think of a different way to word this. They believed in themselves a little too much last year, thinking that they were going to get into the playoffs. So they trade draft capital for Jakob. Now Jakob's looking a little questionable and sketchy out there. So then you then Fred walks, which I am sure they didn't anticipate that the Houston Rockets were going to give him the big. They thought they were getting him back. They really did. Well, yeah, because, I mean, everybody thought James Harden was going to Houston. Like, I, I can kind of understand that process. But at the same time, you should have realized that your team wasn't that good at that point in time. Like after I was like 3 a.m. and they did the Pirtle trade, I had went to Niagara Falls with my friends who were visiting. And I was like, man. I'm tired, but then I saw they traded for Jakob, and I sat down, and I said, I think Jakob is good, yada, yada, yada. I think maybe they paid a bit too much, considering the, the protection, like, on the pick, and, like, that kind of stuff, and I was like, I don't think they're a good enough team to justify this deal. Yeah. And it seems like that's the outcome all these months later. And also, yeah, someone, uh, Orosphere says, don't forget that. The Thad deal was also, like, that's tough, too. That's, uh, but, say la, Yeah, so la then if Pascal walks for nothing, too, and if you potentially would lose OG, like, to me, that's, like, rethink the front office. Like, that's, <laughs> that's literally where I would be, honestly. And I don't say that lightly. Like, I don't usually make that, those types that, of comments. That would, be, that, would be, that would be malpractice. That would be, like, un precedented would it not i can't think of a team that had it shake out like that like back-to-back -back years would be yeah. and like i know that i know they, the they believed that much in a mediocre team and just held held their cards and then we're like oh no yeah and the raptors like i know raptors fans don't like fred and there's a clear departure there and there's yeah it's not good but fred is one year removed from an all-star selection and is still giving you like impact that other teams recognize. And Fred is still, he wasn't getting 40 million from every team, probably only one team, but he would have gotten like a, a hefty sum of money. He He's a valued player. Having him go one year, one year removed from an all-star selection, having Pascal go one year, may like Pascal maybe makes all-star this year probably not I don't think I think Scotty would be the the lone representative having him leave one year removed from all-star and like all NBA and that kind of stuff I would be like god damn man I'd be like how do you let that happen that's crazy and then of course it's even worse in my opinion just because of the fit if OG leaves like Pascal is technically the better player than OG but OG mm -hmm. as far as like slotting next to scotty for the future yeah. if he's not there god like if you lose og you spend the next 18 years looking for og and the raptors have been they looked for a long time prior to og and and you're not getting as much for og at this point in time as you would have gotten last year either. no it's flat out and we know some of the the packages that they got offered and you know but I really like covering OG. I like talking to OG. I like talking to Pascal. I like watching those guys. I enjoy that they're Raptors. But if they lose those guys, just I hate doing the transaction stuff. But if you lose those guys for nothing, either one of them, that's insane. Unprecedented.
And the thing is, too, is like because Pascal's communicating to other teams that he wants to stay in Toronto, that complicates matters. It, uh, it certainly does. Cause I like I don't know what OG thinks, but like that that would lead you to believe, oh, like oh, we don't have to sign him to an extension right now because he loves this market so much. We can play this out, and then if it doesn't play out well, you've got. I'll tell you what in. I think happens. There's there's basically two extreme likelihoods. I think the two extreme likelihoods that represent I think almost 100 percent of future outcomes. Pascal is traded at the trade deadline, or before it. Uh, and OG, I think, OG, I think they get, I think OG resigns, but I don't think Pascal is on the team next year. And Pascal has been one of my favorite players to cover and watch. I still enjoy him immensely. I think he's a good person. I think like all that kind of stuff, but I think this is like trending towards one place. And that doesn't mean Pascal's bad. That doesn't mean he's the cause of things. It just means I think this is how things are shaping up. But, uh, Feels like it has an expiration date. I think that's what I said in that clip. Feels like it has yeah. an expiration date. Uh, cool Cat Co says, you guys really think OG is staying to play behind Scotty and Dennis to be a third option on the team? Lol, OG wants an increased role. If Pascal is not there, OG will have an increased role. Uh, so that's... That... I have no idea what OG thinks about anything, so I, I didn't say any of it. <laughs> um, yeah, that's true. OG, yeah, so basically... All the reporting says that OG wants an increased role. If you talk to OG, he will never speak that. Like, I don't even know if he, when he's like he's talking to his agents, if he'll say it aloud. He might just do it like write it down on a piece of paper and hand it over. He he will never say that publicly. Not even close. Uh, so, yeah, we'll see. They're in a very interesting team building spot. And Scotty making this leap papers over a lot of mistakes that they've made. I did a video last year at the end of December or the start of January. I was uh, cat-sitting Brody for Blake at that time. And I looked over all of the Raptors transactions post-championship. And there's basically like, Scotty Barnes is the lone home run. And there's a lot of decisions that they made that look like okay and passable at the beginning. And then over time, they just start to look like, worse and worse and worse uh so it's it's been a tough run of front office decision making and it all may come to a head this summer i suspect it will anyway we're talking we didn't really do a trade talk caitlin but we did transaction talk after talking about i mean i feel like i started that last night because i made a joke and put them yeah pro day pro day <laughs> what's uh well actually let's let's end it there Let's uh the the Pascal to to Indiana. Um, give me like two minutes on uh why you think Pascal is compelling on that team. They don't have a starting four. That's pretty much that's the, it. The main. Not no no. <laughs> this guy is slipping through a crack in the door. This guy is incredible. Nothing of that. I mean, I I I really enjoy watching Pascal play. I mean, it's it's an interesting thing because watching him at the beginning of the season made me a little bit lower on his fit with the Pacers just because of how I know that Rick Carlisle schemes the offense and not because you need to play Pascal out of triangle concepts. But I wonder if like, and not that they wouldn't get along, but in terms of push and pull between where Pascal would find options, because this is not a post-up offense. It's not going to be a post-up offense under Rick Carlisle. It's not going to be a hub offense that much under Rick Carlisle. So I wonder it, that being said, I think the other players around Pascal and what Pascal would do for them 
aside from those things would be very complimentary. Um, there's been games this year where Tyrese, like in the fourth quarter against Chicago, they used Alex Caruso to face guard him and make other people run the offense. So that might be Bruce Brown. That might be Andrew Nemhart, whoever it may be, and really pressure him. And when he's being schemed out, they don't have anybody else that they can give the ball to and really create an advantage. They have people who can run offense, but like against Orlando, they had the lowest uh, half court offensive rating they've had all year. And Jalen Suggs was pressuring him, going over every screen, preventing him from being used as a back screener. If he did leak out, they were denying the boomerang pass and the rest of the team, like they couldn't get into the next action. Like pretty much their main means of doing that is a ghost screen from Buddy, which is highly effective. We've talked about it, but like having somebody else at the four spot who can actually create, and that's what Pascal does. OG might be a little bit more compelling to me just because of the timeline and because I think that he complements and provides a bridge between both Tyrese and Miles. And I think he would fit like a glove defensively in a lot of ways and with Rick's offense better than Pascal would. Yeah. So it's the, I mean, the Pacers, the Pacers addressed this indirectly. They were asked at the, at, around the draft and they had said about number seven, there was rumors that they were willing to move number seven and Chad Buchanan, who's the GM effectively said like, yeah, we, we looked at a couple guys who were on expiring contracts, but without knowing, like, that's too risky for where we are in our current timeline, yeah. which they're going to have to take a risk like that eventually. Like Tyrese, if you have a top 10, top 15 player in Tyrese Halliburton, there's going to come a time because of what market they are in where they're going to have to be like, look, that's the guy that fits. We're, we, we're ready to do this, and we're just going to trust that they're going to love playing with Tyrese Halliburton so much that they're going to resign. Are they, good, are they a Pascal away right now from being a contender? Probably not. So I, I suspect those are the players on expiring contracts that were in reference. So you can take that for what you will. It's um, when I think of Pascal on that team, I think of the playoffs certainly. And that other right. form of initiation, the ability to collapse and drag um, when it's not as flowy and it's more stunted and stagnated, but also I haven't really seen Tyrese get a chance to like impose flow on a, like a playoff floor really. So I think exactly. it, it may be like, it might be a really good decision from that point of view, but it also might be something that they don't really necessarily need because Pascal gives you for what you're paying, probably like surplus creation and you're have a not such great three point shooting. And, and I mean, it would be equally disastrous. Like if, if Pascal walks and you get nothing for him, it would be more disastrous for the Pacers if they made a trade, gave up assets, and he walked and they got nothing for him because they had got him at the trade deadline and then he just left over the summer. Yeah. That would be a disaster. If, if I had to guess, I think it's um maybe like uh, the Warriors is the big beaming, the big beaming like Pascal location, I think. Uh, but I guess we'll see. The Kings are the, sa- the same way the Pacers are sniffing around on – you know, like OG and, and Pascal, the same way that a lot of teams are, the, the Kings are also there as well. So Pascal and Nick Nurse aren't going to reunite in Philadelphia? I think not. I think probably not, if I had to guess. But we've been talking for an hour and a half, and we did like maybe like 15, 20 minutes on transactions type stuff. Hopefully that feeds the, what do they call it, the slop? Is that, is that the term? Yeah. Yeah. It's about the most they're ever going to get from me on yeah. that. And you started this. This was all you. So you have to. I didn't start it. You brought a question out of the chat. <laughs> and and you took it from there. I'm I'm trying to blame you for this, but Caitlin, uh, is there anything you want to talk about 
Raptors or Pacers wise before we get out of here? Or is there parting shots? I'll let you take the, the wheel on this one. Oh, I don't want to cause a problem for you, but my parting shot will just be that I am a subscriber of Raptors Republic. <laughs> and I I read the things that I pay for, and I will say that I really, truly believe I'm not being hyperbolic here. I, I do read some other things, and I think that what I get from Lewis and Samson, I think is the best in that market. And there's many pieces that they have written that I don't think you're going to get in other markets either. The writing quality, the ability to use and even roll your own analytics, you're not getting that in a lot of places. What Samson just reeled off about Tyrese and advantages, other people don't do that. You can watch film and you can look up numbers on Second Spectrum. You can look up numbers on Synergy. Sometimes those numbers can lie and reflect things that aren't necessarily as good or as bad as the number might say. So having somebody that can interpret the film, also write in a creative way go to the practice facility and talk to these players and ask very smart questions that I've heard on press conferences on video that I've heard both of them ask. It's, it's worth your money. I think it's worth my money and I'm not even a lifelong Raptors fan because I get it. And I learn things about basketball that I might not have thought of. We think about the game in different ways. That's why I like doing these podcasts. Things that I see aren't necessarily things that you think about and things that you bring up about play styles and players aren't necessarily things that I would write about. So that's my big push. That's my recommendation. And also, I will always add that you're also investing in two people that I think are genuinely good people as well. Samson and I talk as friends fairly often, and he's he's a good person. So that's my big, long pitch. Go subscribe to Raptors Republic. I, I'm trying to think of a way to like say everything you just said, but the reverse or the inverse. Um, Caitlin is also a fantastic person. Uh, everything she said about mine and Lewis's work, as far as like the paywall stuff at uh, Raptors Republic, I'll put it in the bio. It's not currently there, but just type in Caitlin Cooper Patron. She is, not for my money, for anybody's money, the best basketball analyst in the world. And you will not get her insights anywhere else. Um, you might be able to get mine and Lewis's elsewhere. You know, you might be able to cobble it together. There is no comparison for how Caitlin covers um, the NBA. So just as a heads up, if anybody wants to read her stuff, watch video breakdowns, anything, popsicle ratings, the whole deal, the whole nine yards. Uh, Caitlin Cooper's Patreon. Just type that in on Google. It'll pop up. It's uh, She is tremendous. She is the best. Thank you for the, the kind words, Caitlin. Thank you for always uh, lending your expertise to these uh, Indiana slash Raptors crossovers that feature a lot more Raptors, obviously. And uh, thank you for coming on. Listeners, before you get out of here, like the video because it'll help suggest it to people after it publishes. Uh, and uh, subscribe to Raptors Republic YouTube page, subscribe to RaptorsRepublic.com, and subscribe to Caitlin Cooper's Patreon. And follow her on Twitter at C2 underscore Cooper. All those good things. Caitlin, does that feel like a podcast? Did we do it? Yeah, I, I do also want to say thank you to the Raptors Republic listeners and many of you who follow me and ask me things about the Raptors. I appreciate that. Hopefully this was listenable. Hope it sounded like I know something about your team and offered something that you probably wouldn't get a much better version of from Samson um, and Lewis. So I appreciate that as well. Um, you you are very well loved by the, by the Raptors. Anytime I see you post something and there's a marginal way to like, shoehorn the raptors in there's like 18 people who say like caitlin thoughts on the raptors would you like to tell them <laughs> and i i suspect that's because of our long and uh fruitful collaboration talking about basketball which is something i hold dear and something important and i'm glad we get to keep doing it so listeners thank you for popping in on this conversation 
I hope for the people listening on the podcast version, an hour and a half wasn't too long for you. I hope you enjoyed as it weaved and worked its way through the conversation. We covered a lot of topics. Okay. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. For myself, for Caitlin. Whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye. <laughs>